Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this? What is it? It's afternoon. How are you doing this afternoon over here? You know, I'm I'm okay, David. I'm not I'm not great. I've had sort of mixed uh, signals and and mixed reviews and uh, some exciting things, but some disappointments. So you know, just forging ahead. I do uh, sense a, a real shift in mood uh, in the sort of larger community. Uh, there, it's an election day here. Uh, I think people are really, really frustrated with what's going on uh, in America right now. And that really hits home because, uh, you know, we've talked about some of the cool, you know, small town feeling and vibe here. Um, so it's, it's more insulated from a lot of the negativity. Um, apparently at my, in, or, you know, the condo uh, neighborhood where I moved from, uh, in Henderson, a guy was pulled in at the 7-Eleven, filling up his tank or putting some in the tank, and he pulls out a gun and shot himself. And I said to the cashier, who happened to be the person you know on, on duty at the time, I said, you must have been freaked out. And I think that the shock is sort of wearing off. And he said, well, at least he didn't throw the keys away. So a little bit of the sense of, of, I don't know, I think that there's something serious going on and it's kind of a little bit hard to ignore that. But anyway, my, uh, my personal mood is, is okay. And how are you doing on your end? Doing pretty okay. I was talking to a friend on the phone this morning about the gas prices. And as you said, it's election day where you're at. It's election season. I have been gloriously away from social media with no real urge to go back, save to, you know, post links well to the show, to post links to this show or my other show or my books. Um, because as is the case with every election season, we end up with a Charlie Brown in the football situation where people <laughs> whip themselves into a frenzy yet again. And once again, decide to, uh, you know, cannibalize each other only to eventually find out that their guy or girl or whoever is just as full of shit as the other one. Um, so I stayed away from that, but I was talking to a friend on the phone and what we said, and this was, this was so simple, but it feels so true. It, all your little political arguments don't really, they don't really matter. People don't want $5 gas period. That's, That's it. it. That's it. And, it, and, and it, it does extend down to um, the family shopping and the grocery level. That is really hurting, you know, people. Mm -hmm. You can see that. You can see that. Rios was feeling a little sick today. And I went to the CVS to pick up some vitamin C tablets. And I would get these all the time from, it's been a while since I've supplemented vitamin C uh, like that. But I used to get them for about seven or eight bucks just a few years ago. Went to CVS, they were $22 for vitamin C supplements. How many for, pills in that? About that? 100, 180. Shit. And that is the cheapest vitamin. Yeah. You now you get into the more exotic stuff and you're really, oh man. I. It was looking like the prices literally looked like a perfume counter, not a supplement rack. 
it was just getting crazy. And I have to assume a lot of it has to do with, yeah, gas prices and inflation. And I went to go buy uh, just groceries yesterday and I was trying, I was literally back to looking for the cheapest loaf of bread like I used to do in college because now the bread that I normally get is $3.83. It's just, it's insane. I don't think you could find any bread in my, in any store that I know of that is that cheap here. I mean, it's, it's really getting bad. And I think you're yeah. right that all of these other issues, forget Roe v. Wade, forget the guns, forget everything. If you've got gasoline at five fifty a gallon and people can't afford basic groceries, that's it. You know, that's just that's, it. That's, that's the only problem. That is literally the only problem. You have to find a way to get gas down. I remember when I used to move furniture, what my boss who was contracted out to a big furniture store in Oklahoma city, his problem, his major issue was gas back then. And gas back then was about two twenty-five. but he had a, you know, a 26 foot truck with a hundred gallon tank. And he'd have to fill, if he had to fill that thing up twice a day, all of a sudden the delivery fees would go up. So I can't even imagine I know that the furniture stores are still bustling dressers and beds and having them delivered, but those delivery fees have got to be through the roof just to, just for them to keep their own subcontracted businesses in, in business. And I, you know, another friend of mine that I was talking to was uh, he works odd jobs, carpentry, things like that. And it's, getting rough out there for him because nobody wants to hire him just because of how much materials would cost to, you yeah. know, he was putting in a mailbox for an old lady this morning and um, he basically didn't want to go and buy a post hole digger and neither did she. And so he was digging this post for the mailbox by hand because everything's too expensive. Just nobody can afford to do anything. Simple things, right? Putting in a mailbox, delivering a bed, the kind of things that make life go around all stop yeah. when gas gets that high. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's been this this tremendous cycle of, of COVID and then supply chain issues and now the gas prices, which you know, people don't realize that stuff comes from so far away, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, look at diesel prices and people go, oh, I don't have a diesel. Car. Well, I'm sorry. A lot of things run on diesel, like trains, you know, I saw a fascinating article that listener of the show and former Patreon or Patreon patron uh, Jay Springett posted to his Tumblr. He's got a post that's going a little viral right now about the reemergence of sailboats for commerce. So sailboats are making a comeback. Uh, oh. Big, big, tall, cool looking wind well obviously wind powered boats <laughs> but well, um, you know i it, it's been a while since we've seen the tall ships i think that's really cool i mean we may see i mean god only knows what we may see come back yeah you know yeah come, yeah lots of bicycles i think are going to come back i think that uh america has got to get on the ball and build uh, an effective railway system just for transportation around the, the country for people, right? Like, I, I still don't know why I can't just get on a bullet train 
to Dallas if I want to. Like, why do I have to drive that? Driving is cool, but it's odd to me that the option really isn't there. Amtrak does exist, but have you ever been on an Amtrak? I have, and I, uh, but you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it's a pretty good run because it's on, it's the Coast Star Line, you know, effectively. Yeah. Um, and I think the Empire Builder from Seattle to Chicago, I've heard, I've always wanted to take that run. But uh, as you go, the farther south you go on the coast, the weirder things get. And they're not really up to standard. I think you have to bring a kind of romance of train travel to it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but I think yeah. so much better than they were, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at Tokyo or China and how effective their rail systems are, In Europe. I mean, Europe, yeah, exactly. The idea of being able to hop on a train when you're, you know, you're in France and then a little bit later you're in Denmark and, and anyway, uh, we've got to catch up on all of that. But so to get into the show, I have my five words that I'm going to attempt to sneakily work into the episode. Chris also gives me an, an imaginative challenge. Before we do that, we had a lost episode. Something very strange happened that's never happened before. I put the episode together in Audacity and then I exported it and I, I uploaded it listened to it and then uploaded it. And then I get a text from Chris saying, there's something very wrong with the episode. (laughs) And I went and listened to it and I said, well, he's definitely correct. There's something very wrong with this. So I went, I went back to audacity thinking, Oh, okay. I must have just moved something misaligned the audio tracks, what have you. So I went back in and I realigned them. But this time I thought I'm not going to be caught slipping. I'm going to double check this. And as I went through the episode, I realized that bits of our audio track had somehow been completely rearranged like a puzzle, like bits had been taken apart and, and, and moved around. So the imaginative challenge last time uh, required me to reimagine the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, uh, in a way that would cast a new light on it. And the way that I did that was by saying that what nobody can know about the trial is that Johnny Depp is actually possessed by a demon named Edward Scissorhands. And this demon has given him the power, the chameleon-like powers of a virtuoso actor, but has also led to some relatively frightening practices. Uh, So Amber Heard being knowledgeable of this demon and of the spooky things that go on in the, in the Depp castle uh, can't mention it at all. She can't say these things out loud or uh, the demon will be able to spread to whoever hears it. So she's on the stand trying to explain away pooping in Johnny Depp's bed but she can't tell people that that was in fact part of a banning ritual, banishment ritual to get the demon out of her beloved boyfriend. So she has to stand up there stoically and look like a bipolar mess instead of letting out the truth. So that, that was last week's uh, lost 
challenge. But Chris, what is my what is my challenge for today? Okay, well, that was very well summarized. And for people who who missed it, it really was the, the hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic effect of, of whatever the scramble was was just absolutely marvelous. And at some point, I'm going to play it back. And I, I think we should just share it as it is, because it is really like a demented jigsaw puzzle in audio form. But your challenge uh, this time is uh, more upbeat, more upbeat. Uh, we have, a you know, every other day is a national something day. You know, we have you know, National Small Dog Day, National Take a Nap Day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a proper new holiday that you're going to come up with, with a name and some of the ceremonial trappings, something that will give us as a nation some excitement, some sense of unity that people can really believe in. So it can't be something that everyone's going to go, particularly younger people are going to go, oh no, that's just bullshit. No, I don't believe that. That's the absolute worst case scenario result. We don't want that to happen. But we do want people to stop for a moment, maybe. And maybe that's the purpose of this is just to pause for a moment and to rediscover some gratitude about our lives, whatever, however we can, okay? But a okay. new national holiday or a proposal for such, and it does need, it needs a good strong name. It needs some kind of trappings in terms of uh, ceremonial gear or, you know, merchandise, maybe a food thing. You know, it can't just be a name. It has to be something that we we can do. Okay. Any questions? No, no questions. The brain is already, the gears are turning. Good. Yeah. All right. So on that note, last episode, we talked, I was in a bit of a bummer mood. And by the end of the episode, I was out of my bummer mood which really uh, disappointed me that the episode scrambled the way that it did because it had a lot of really rich content in it. Um, but the general uh, gist of it, the episode was going to be clo uh, called uh, Close This, Close Your Eyes and Read This, right? And it was sort of about the power of letters, both the letters in the alphabet and physical letters that you would get in the mail. You told a great story about a friend of yours who would send letters to you from halfway across the world. And by the time they got there, they'd be covered in stamps and they'd be on this beautiful, thick paper and how cool it was to receive those things. And what we talked about boiled down to, uh, yeah, getting off of social media, essentially, and starting to write things down in a notebook. Anytime that there would be a thought, which I've been trained Pavlov's dog style into putting into a, a Twitter post. Before Twitter, it was a Facebook post. I've started to write those down. The idea being to get back a sense of, of tactility and, uh, and, and realness. And I think 
there's uh, there is one thing that I wanted to talk about this episode, and it's an article by it's called the Convivial Society, and the article is called "We Don't Live in a Simulation; We Live in the Past." And the I feel like this follows very well from what we were talking about because what they say is that when we're on the internet, the internet is a record of things that have happened in the past. Now, the internet is very immediate when you're on it. It feels like everything is happening in the present, but in fact, it's really not. There is no performance of of presentness. There is only a nonstop archival of things that have happened in the past. That's why people argue so much about political, like January 6th, people will argue about that online and they'll have evidence for this and that, and oh, the FBI was there and these people, you know, everybody is fighting over the scraps of these events that happened in our very recent past to the point that it begins to resemble uh, something from a Jorge Luis Borges story, some kind of endless library or an Akashic record of just endless trivia piled on top of things, 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 things. things. And the point that the article makes is that when it's not that it's bad to look to the past, it's not bad to have a sense of history, but when our entire lived present experience is lived on the past, AKA on the internet, it makes it tougher to envision a future because we never have a moment to actually live in the present that we live in now. So the future equals the present plus the past. And the thesis of this article is that the past is slowly overtaking everything. So we're just repeating endlessly. Well, you know, I think that that's in one sense, very hard to argue with, uh, I think I guess the important thing from a survival uh, and we're, we're working on our guidebook, which we call psychic defense. Uh, I guess the thing is to pull that apart a little bit and to see what really are the inner mechanisms of that. Uh, because I think the time distortion, this is one of the things that's really hard to come to terms with about, uh, and it's one of my many complaints with all of the revisionist histories that are going on today. I mean, the 1614 project, for instance, I mean, it's just as one of, of many, you know, and I don't think that we're, it, it, we're culturally capable of, of projecting back into the past to understand what people were really faced with. Uh, just for instance, I, I happen to have some old, uh, well, they're not that old, uh, the newspapers, you know, from, from the, uh, beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, it's amazing the number of deaths that happened because of pretty simple traumatic injury. Uh, there are still women dying in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Get this, the, the number of, of people who were dying because of cataract surgery or dental surgery. Not only was there a problem with pain in the sense of, of anesthesia not really being, you know, right there. People were actually dying. So we really don't know what's going on, you know, historically with 
the mindsets and the mind frames of people then. But I think we truly, truly do not have an understanding of how they shaped time. You know, I think the only way we have that in any regard is through some really great writers, perhaps. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't know if we can really sort of uh, extrapolate from them or extrapolate down from them to a mass view of time. But is the thesis then of this article that <clears throat> the rise of the internet itself <clears throat> marks the turning point or are there sub turning points within that? Because the internet did go through uh, some pretty significant phases I mean, I remember when uh, Yahoo, Yahoo or whatever it was, you know, uh, Google wasn't around, you know, and it was kind of clumsy. And mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would have thought about um, being online all the time. Um, and it makes me think of the millennium bug, you know, which turned out to be an enormous uh, fizzer. But mm -hmm. I, I think any time that we have a sense of, technology changing the shape of time, changing the experience of time, uh, I think that's pretty significant. Um, we've mentioned Edward T. Hall, uh, the cultural anthropologist before, I and mean, he was very concerned about how different cultures formulate space and time. He devoted two different books to that. Um, It really is a concern about that because I don't know what the average person can do to break that spell. I suppose you first of all have to know you're under a spell. I think that knowing that you're under a spell is exactly what it is. I think that there's a lot of power and agency in the ability to choose which spell you're under. I think that a big psychic issue right now is this <clears throat> constant relitigation of of the past and these different ideologies uh fighting with each other um i we've talked about robert anton wilson and his reality tunnel i'm a big fan of something called reality tunnel tourism where you have the ability to look at different viewpoints while still having a kind of solid ground to stand on. But the idea of uh, being able to structure your own time and, and create a sense of time, I think does very specifically come from a curatorial eye towards the past and being able to read certain works of fiction and nonfiction and kind of organize the way that you believe the world to be. Not necessarily to close that off, to say that your mind can never be changed. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. But that rather you don't constantly, you don't spend all of your time engaged in this sort of Philip K. Dick, uh, what is real, valis reality, right? You have to choose a certain kind of hypnosis or a certain kind of, uh, of, uh, of fiction in a way, in order to get at anything resembling the truth. What do you say to people who uh, would argue that the, uh, 
the internet. I'm not sure that's exactly what they mean, but that's the shorthand for it. Because uh, I think they mean that the total uh, experience of the internet. But the internet as, as proof of continuous evolution and a dynamic reality. So they're thinking of it in very positive terms. Whereas I think what, what, how you introduced the topic was almost like a fossil record mm -hmm. that keeps fossilizing us mm -hmm. in an mm -hmm. active sort of way. We, you know, it's, it's not really uh, a good kind of fossil record. It's, mm -hmm. it's a weird embalming uh, yeah. wave that takes over um, how do we merge those two things? And then I have a question because this just made me think of, of um, are you familiar with this service? And I think that's the right way to put it. That's partly my question. I don't know if it's a service or not, but the Wayback Machine. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Wayback Machine. Yeah, that's nothing dies on the internet. <laughs> that's a beautiful reference to an old uh, Sherman and Peabody cartoon thing. I, I used to love the Wayback Machine idea. But is that a server? Who runs that? That is a really great question. I don't know. I don't know who runs the, the Wayback Machine, but I've used it many times. Uh, I think that people who don't know it exists uh, would do themselves a service by checking that out because essentially everything that has ever been posted on the internet is archived somehow. I don't understand the process by which uh, these things are able to be pulled back up, but basically you can go to a website and say a blog post has been taken down. All you have to do is go to that website in the Wayback Machine and set it to a date and the Wayback Machine will go back in time to when that blog post was public and you can read it. So I've done that uh, with <laughs> many posts that have been conspicuously taken down. Um, but, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, that must be what the Twitter shamers are, are doing. They, that, that must be, whether it's, it's through the Wayback Machine or some other type of service like that, uh, they must be just, you know, rummaging through uh, the, this enormous graveyard or junkyard of, of cyber messaging. Yeah, it's something to that effect. I think that the, what we were saying about how to merge these two ideas, what the article here says is that on the internet, action doesn't build the future. It only feeds the digital archives of the past. And because on the internet, we live in the past, the future is not lived, it's programmed. And this gets into a lot of the algorithmic manipulations that we can experience when we're online. But as you said, there are people who see this uh, as a sort of progress, as a way to, uh, to sort of move forward, the free sharing of information, the continual development of new technology. I just... I think that the way to blend these things as with anything is to find a healthy medium in the middle. And I'm reminded of people who want to go back to nature. So they will move out into the woods and start their own farm. Usually they can't grow anything and they start to starve. 
they don't use modern products. They don't, you know, drive a car or whatever. And those people very often, not always, but often, uh, don't, they're not able to be successful. They have to come back and be reintegrated into society. Now, the people who do it successfully, I think are really cool. I think it's, I think it's really neat that some people are able to do that, but I've always, uh, been against this idea of, of it needing to be all or nothing, right? I think that this, we don't live in a simulation, we live in the past article was an important puzzle piece for me because it spoke to why the internet feels so hollow, why it feels so empty, right? Every, every time you get on it, it's so formulaic the way that, you know, you get taken to this and you're told this information and then you're involved in a discussion with somebody else who's, you know, mad or what have you. I think that uh, a good solid balance of maybe having, for example, like a, a physical real world example of this, instead of going back to nature, maybe you have a compost heap in your backyard and maybe you recycle and maybe you do ride a bike as much as you drive a car. It's all about that, that balance. So it really just speaks to, uh, you know, when you go onto the internet, when you go onto this sort of living uh, representation of the past, you put on a hazmat suit in a way and you realize it for what it is. Um, and you, you really, you try to keep two feet firmly planted on the ground. It might be as simple as just kind of what I'm doing, writing in a notebook, putting my feet into grass with Gus. I feel like that's really important. Today we looked at an enormous elm tree for maybe five minutes on our walk because it was just so big. And I'm embarrassed to say that I've, I take Gus on a walk every morning at 8.30 because during the summer, it gets too hot towards noon. We, you can't take a walk at 2 p.m. Um, so at 8.30, we take a walk for an hour and I passed by this tree dozens of times. And I was, you know, too kind of lost in my own thought, staring at the sticks and pebbles on the ground to recognize this enormous, you know, 80 foot tree. Um, so little things like that, I think, are how to balance these these two things out. Okay, well, I'm uh, just going to do a little show and tell because we're, uh, I've got tons of, just, you know, ordinary notebooks, but then I've got some really cool ones. I really like this one. This is a brand called Right is Rain, or Right in the Rain, sorry, Right in the Rain. And this Waterproof. is- yeah, yeah. And this is the one, the art one that the uh, my neighbor left. Ooh, cool. These sort of, you know, odd drawings that just appear. You know, sometimes she's doing drawings, sometimes she's doing logo work and everything. Uh, and, it, you know, it's kind of, there's, there's something sort of sad about it, but something beautiful too. Um, but I wanted to pick up on one thing. We are um, big fans, both of us, of uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson's uh, book, Metaphors, uh, We Live By. And I wondered if we could just do a, a language analysis of, of the Internet. And one word jumped out. I'm, I'm very, very conscious of preposition. I'm in a preposition sort of fixation 
uh, lately. And I'm thinking about the word on, you know, on, on the internet, on the internet, online. Uh, I've noticed uh, my mom, Ellen, who you know, she uses the expression pulling up a message on, on email or an attachment, okay, pulling up. And I thought, I don't know where she got that from. I, I don't use that phrase. But a lot of people say on the internet, which I, I, I suspect is short for online. But even that is very strange. What, what does that mean? I mean, when I think of line, I think, first of all, of a factory line. You know, I think of being on an assembly line. Uh, and I have a certain place on it. Uh, I've only worked, I think, well, two factory lines I have in my life overall. Um, I hope to never again. And I don't think many humans will. I think we're going to be all replaced by, uh, by robots completely. But what is your view about this, you know, this sense of being on? I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and will that... I mean, is the extension, and I, I sort of wonder if there aren't people right now beavering away at this to make, to change that preposition to in, or, you know, the, we want to get more immersive, you know, that's, um, <coughs> I don't know. Have you ever been to a meow wolf place? Do you know what I mean by yes, that? Yes, I've been yeah. in, uh, in Santa Fe. I went to one. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's this constant, I mean, some of it's really cool, I think, but it's overwhelming to me. I can only do about two hours, but the idea is obviously this immersive techno experience. Um, And I'm not saying that some of the artists and technicians involved aren't very talented and it's not interesting. It's just overwhelming. But I wonder if we're going from on into in, in some way. But what does the on mean to you? Where, where did we get that? Where did this lingo, very simple, which is almost so common that we're, it's invisible. That's one of our ongoing themes is to pay intent, attention to the invisible, what's taken for granted. Yeah, systems go online. Um, that would be my first thought that they become, that when they're up and running, things are online. So it feels like, you know, you are setting up within a system but the thing that also comes to my mind is on the line so being uh somebody being on the line feels like you know putting something at risk but also uh you know being connected in a way like you're you're like birds on a wire right you're all on Mm -hmm. this kind of line together and there's a current of electricity that's running you know through right under your feet essentially um, the, it is interesting because, you know, I put my can on the table, I'm sitting in a chair and I go on line. I would have to think more about that because that is a really, and it's also interesting to me that you go online to the internet, right? It's, it's on and in, uh, of course it's in uh, proceeding, you know, inter, but yeah, no, it's, it does feel oddly, uh, uh, disconnected in a way, putting something on. I love your idea of online being on an assembly line, because I also think of, uh, there are some people I've always said, I, I have to go get in line for 
you know, whatever. But there are people on the East Coast who say, go hop online, like in New York and things like that. They're like, oh, I stood, I stood online for uh, this restaurant for, mm -hmm. for, for hours. So there is also a kind of waiting room aspect to it, standing in a queue that I think uh, <laughs> is kind of scary if you think about it. If you think about the internet as a giant waiting room where people can litigate uh, various uh, sundry subjects as voraciously as possible, uh, then yeah, I, I could see that. But that is interesting. Those are, my, those are my thoughts for now about that. I like the idea of the, of the waiting thing. They're going back to, I'm trying to think when it would have been. It would have been maybe before 2000 or maybe just around there, but there was a kind of a slang phrase of complaining for about the speed of the internet. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Lag? It's like, well, oh, it was, that, that's the meaning of it. Yeah, it was, right. it was, you know, your, your data speed trans, just wasn't fast enough. Uh, uh, and it was, oh, I wish I could, I move, I'll get it. I'll pin it down. It's been, I mean, everything has changed so much so we don't sort of say it, you know, but it was, um, <coughs> oh, the worldwide weight. Oh, okay. I'd never heard that. Before. I'd wait. Yeah. 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 And so instantly, and oh, that's a beautiful word, isn't it? Instantly. Uh, we got obsessed with the speed, you know, the speed of, of the data flow and how long we had to wait. Instantly adjusting around the idea that, you know, not that long before it wasn't even, you know, wasn't even there. Um, have you ever read the book Future Shock by Alan? The Alan Rush. Alton? Oh, right. No, I've read Present Shock by Doug Rushkoff, which is a playoff of Future yeah. Shock. Yeah. yeah. I know um, Doug. Doug's in, he's kind of bounced back. He kind of wandered away for a while. But um, he's a the pretty Toffler smart guy. Book, the Toffler book it goes back in time to the 70s. Um, and I sometimes look back at the big best-selling books of the past because I think it's really that talk about going, you know, looking at the fossil record, have a look at the New York times bestseller list from 1970 today mm. and see if you don't, it's scary. Mm. It's really, really <laughs> scary. Um, but Toffler's book, um, I mean, there are some silly things that he gets wrong, but there's a lot that he really, really gets right. And I, there's a lot that he tonally gets right, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, I mean, it's not just the shock, he, you know, in the title, he, he really explores that and teases that out of what, what are the mechanisms of that? What, what does that look like in people's mm -hmm. lives? And this sense of uh, an expectation instantly replacing itself with a higher threshold of stakes, anxiety, speed, money, you know, and the, the, the rapidity of that. So that every day kind of plows itself under 
you know? Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. wonder if that's kind of what, with this uh, article that you're talking about, that it's this sense of an almost immediate archaeological state mm-hmm. being, mm-hmm. you know? That, that, I think, is a really frightening idea um, mm-hmm. because it, it makes me think of... Um, I used to have this beautiful collection of insects. Well, I still do. They're just in Australia. But, you know, prehistoric flies in Dominican amber, you know? And, I mean, they, they're just perfect. And they look something like flies today, except they're not. You know, they're from thousands and thousands of years ago. And that idea of being just kind of, not even paralyzed it's something more it's and it's not exactly frozen suspended suspended you know within uh a kind of glycerin clear bubble of the apparent moment Mm -hmm. which is already behind us and I, i think listeners should know that that theme of what is already behind us is a major issue that gets teased out in uh, our guidebook um, because I think that really is uh, the one handle on the giant social anxiety of our time is it's all ready behind us. I think so too. I think that this, this brings to mind things like accelerationism. I love the idea of the, of the Amber um, makes me think of Jurassic Park. There's a new Jurassic Park movie that's coming out, uh, the, the Return of the Past. I think that um, that should be where we pick this up next time. Um, because I think that that's a really good starting point, this idea of accelerationism and this kind of constant uh, feeling like you can't get ahead of the past, right? Everything kind of getting as you put it, I thought quite nice, almost like this sort of threshing machine of just, you know, constantly more and more content getting sucked underneath. Mm-hmm. But um, I can hear my, my son screaming at my wife. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going, uh, I've got to run a few errands. So I'm going to give you my, my challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought it would be interesting, a new, uh, a new ritual, a new holiday, a new, you know, day off from work that people could have with its own uh, sort of rituals and, and pastimes. I think that people need something uh, along the lines of a outdoor festival style holiday, right? Sort of like the midsummer mm-hmm. in, in Norwegian countries. But I thought that for this one, we could have Woodstock Day. And very specifically, it would be a holiday that's based around Woodstock 99, which notoriously went to shit. So the rituals that would be involved in this, <laughs> instead, of, instead of Christmas carols, we'd have Red Hot Chili Peppers songs, uh, or maybe Limp Biscuit songs, right? In, in, 200, in 200 years, nobody will know that the Red Hot Chili Peppers were thought of as this sort of butt rock band who put socks on their penises and jumped around naked on stage. Nobody will know that. It'll just be, these will just be the carols of Woodstock Day. And people will go out into the streets um, 
at home, they can decorate themselves in various mud sort of designs and, and walk around and marvel at all of the enormous bonfires that have been lit. And if there's any kind of reflection outside of it, just kind of being a fun communal event where people can drink and come together, um, we can also reflect on the fact that this, in my opinion, I think actually is one of the uh, seminal events of the current age that we live in. The attempt to recreate a Woodstock in 1999 and it all turning into complete chaos, I think is really worth, uh, worth thinking about and worth uh, ritualizing to sort of bring that chaos in back into ritual, right? I feel like there was an explosion from that moment in American culture and we could have a holiday that is specifically trying to get that genie back in a bottle through ritualized recreation of it. I like it, I like it. And it ties into one of the uh, exercises that we leave uh, readers of the guidebook or, or when, it, when it comes out uh, about working directly with photography about the future, about how something that comes out of popular culture today, what that might look like in times to come, how it might get distorted or amplified. I think that's always a fun thing to think about. And it's at the heart of some of the best uh, science fiction and fantasy novels. Um, some really great ideas on that. Cool. All right. Well, is it time for a tool? Yes, a tool, a tip, and a dream. Okay. Um, the tool is on, on the theme of, of metaphors and, and de-metaphoring uh, and being very conscious when one is using metaphors and when one is just really trying to uh, use terms in, in a very literal uh, sense. Um, and this comes out of the workbook uh, in the guide um, because... Metaphors are very, very powerful magic. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, you... what, what happened? Oh, I think I'm getting an update that I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> I've update. lost my vision. Up oh, well, update. it doesn't matter because you can hear my voice, right? Mm -hmm. I can hear you. Okay. Uh, although I was going to hold up a show and tell piece at a moment. So I can still see you. Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, it's very important, you know, every tool can be used as a weapon. Cures are poisons if we change the dose. As powerful as metaphors are, we need to really be as suspicious of them as we are grateful for them and to know when we're using one. Uh, the other day I heard the word someone, it was just a conversation in passing and it was kind of an odd word, it jumped out. Someone said, oh, that's just tripe. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I, I love that word because I instantly knew that tripe is, of course, the edible stomach lining, oftentimes the second stomach of a cow, particularly mm -hmm. can be sheep or, or pigs, but mostly cows. And I think it's interesting to, you know, reflect on the fact that cows have two stomachs, you know? It's very uh, good in a Vietnamese soup in pho. Yeah. Tried pho is really good. So the tool is to really, it, it's part of a larger category of 
being constantly alert to language and to not taking things for granted. Because when we, when we let things slip by, uh, we start to build up a substrate of inattention where we get into a simulated world of metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor, and we're no longer listening to any of the real meanings. And so our perceptions are really determined by these layers of inattention, which is a really, really difficult thing to break out of. And I think there's a whole generation, uh, Generation Z, who is really going to find it hard to break out of that because they are so used to letting things slip by and assuming they know what something means. And they might in a colloquial sense, but the layers and levels and depths of meaning totally gone, totally gone. Mm -hmm. So we need to get that back. Um, so that's the tool for this week. Um, here's my tip. Can you see this? Yeah, it's a light. It looks like uh, looks like a. Oh, is that a? Is that for reading? Is that to? Oh, is that a mag magnifying glass? If I use it when I'm out on my walks looking at ants. It's a oh, it's cool. pocket oh. magnifying glass, uh, and you can switch the light off if you want, or you can have it on. But the tip is have some cool stuff for your pockets. I'm getting one of those on Amazon right now, actually. It's really, I mean, you'll enjoy it with Gus out, out on walks. It's a little bit of, this is what we're talking about. When David and I talk about the crystal radio idea of a little bit homemade DIY science investigation, it's, it's some magic, a little totem gadgets, but it's a little bit of inquiry into the world. You know, it just gets you a little bit more attentive. I find just having this in my pocket makes me think differently mm. even if i don't mm -hmm. pull it out on a walk right it's oh they're on they're on sale on amazon sorry i'm buying one of those right now <laughs> yeah cool cool i recommend that, you know i recommend them little things like they're good for the spirit they're good for morale but you'll find that you use it and you'll find that you you, you start to see interesting things that you wouldn't <laughs> otherwise um anything that has to do with vision is worth checking out because the entire history of optics is one of the most fascinating parts of, of the history of science and the history of craft. Um, there's a lot of art that's gone into it and it really has shaped truly our vision culturally in a much bigger and metaphorical sense, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really worth Absolutely. checking out. That's awesome. Okay. Dream time. All right. Well, I'll just throw out, a, there, I have a focus dream, but there are a couple of elements that just uh, wandered through that I just want to throw out. In one, there was an overly friendly bloodhound named Joshua, and he was involved with a group of people in a big city park, and they seemed to be having a, a debate or argument, and they couldn't remember a particular term. And I happened to be walking past and I said, what you're trying to say is an actuarial table, as in what insurance companies use. Uh, I don't know what that means. I also uh, encountered someone named Tiger Shortcake, which I think is a great name. But, like a Barry Gifford character. Yeah. 
But here is a here's a nicely focused dream that I think raises some interesting questions. I was sitting in a cafe bar uh, working on uh, an edit, some sort of editing assignment. Uh, I don't know how much of, of my own writing was in it. It was primarily the work of a female friend, but I was certainly editing it. And it was printed so there was a uh, copy on both sides of the pages, right? And I'm sitting at a, a table in an ordinary nice uh, cafe bar. And this guy came up to me and I can see him vividly now, late thirties, maybe early forties, fairly burly, short, red, red hair and a red beard. And he was wearing a faded orange t-shirt and sort of uh, beige uh, cargo pants. Uh, I got the feeling he might've been like a contractor. He could have been maybe a plumber, some sort of tradesman. Okay. And he had a female partner who I just intuited was his wife. She was a black haired woman, kind of voluptuous over at the bar, a little bit drunk, a little bit loud, but not a problem necessarily. But he stopped in front of my table and looked at me and I got a very, very weird vibe very weird. And he was looking at the, the pages I was reading through. And he asked me, what you doing there? And I wasn't, the, the, the material I was reading wasn't in any way explicit or anything I needed to be at all embarrassed about in, in any way. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I very decisively lied to him about what it was. I didn't just, you know, shrug it off. I, I could have easily have just said, oh, it's a piece of friend was written. I'm just doing some editing. I didn't. But he'd been looking at the back of the, of the page. But the moment I put forward the lie, which I didn't need to do, right? his eyes sort of squinted up in a really, really unnerving way. And I got a full on malevolent vibe. Not like he was gonna attack me, nothing like that. Nothing, nothing all that human, honestly, or certainly not explicable. It was just purely on a psychomagnetic intuitive way, but it was really not a good feeling at all. And as I came out of the dream, I was thinking to myself, did I have that intuition because of something that he was projecting that is just simply hard to put your finger on or put words to? Was I really perceiving some kind of malignancy that didn't have any reason or cause, but nonetheless was there. Or, and this is the thought I woke up on, did my inexplicable lie about what I was doing, did that create the malignancy? Mm. Did that create the suspicion 
the, the creepiness, the squint in the eyes. That's how I woke up. <laughs>